Good morning. Um, today's reading is from Ephesians chapter three, verse fourteen to twenty-one. A prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneeled before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glories, out of, sorry, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may the will. In your heart through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I was thirty years of age when I first met my wife. Which means that I spent ten years, my twenties and thirties, living as a bachelor.、Uh, I got pretty good. I'm a professional. Was a professional bachelor, and that means that I, I lived with a number of different roommates over those ten years. I lived in five different states、uh, in those ten years, and countless different locations. I, I mean, I wasn't getting evicted or anything. It's just the way it, way it worked out. That sounded strange. But I had a lot of different roommates, experiences with lots of different kinds of people. But I'll never forget this one roommate of mine. This was very early on. This is still when I lived in Wyoming. One of my first, one of my first roommates was this guy who was a jazz trumpet player, very gifted jazz trumpet player. And I, I had been playing guitar for many years, but I was just starting to get into improvisation on guitar. And I thought, well, I should ask this guy. I should ask my roommate, you know, if he could help me. With just some of the basics, the basic tools that you need in order to do improvisation. Now, I have since learned over the years that you just don't ask jazz musicians questions about music. You just don't because they they kind of live. I'm sorry, Paul, but you just don't. They 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 live in their own world. They they have their own lingo. It's like they have their own language, and it's this like artsy head in the clouds kind of, and you just walk away confused. So I've learned not to bother asking him now, but at the time I didn't realize this. So I asked him. I said, "Can you help me with just some of the fundamentals, some of the basics of improvisation?" And and this is what he said to me. He goes, "He goes, man, just ride the wave. Just, just, just. When I'm playing, man, I just, I just, I just, I just ride the wave. I'm like, we live in Wyoming. There aren't waves for." Hundreds, thousands of miles. What are you talking about? Today we are continuing in our series on the Book of Ephesians, and as we have seen as we've moved through the Book of Ephesians, that, that the central theme, I think, or at least one of the central themes that emerges in the Book of Ephesians, is very straightforwardly that God has come 
to reconcile all things. That God has come to make all things right. That God has looked down and He has seen our world and He has seen the state that it is in. And He has come to bring reconciliation. And of course, at the very heart of that is that in the person of Jesus, God came and He entered into this world. He entered into the sin and sickness and death of this world. He entered into it and through His resurrection, He showed that He had victory over it. That through that, We see the forgiveness of God, that he was willing to take our sin upon him. We see his forgiveness, and we see his power over sickness and death. We see his power to bring reconciliation to all things. And we've seen that that at the heart of that is being reconciled to God and being reconciled to one another, that God's plan is to reconcile us with God and to reconcile us with one another. And then what we've seen as we've moved forward is that this is what is perhaps even more profound, I don't know if it's more profound, but it seems to me to be very profound, is that the means through which he desires to bring reconciliation into this world is through the church. That it's through us, it's through his followers, that that as we saw, it uses this imagery of Christ being the cornerstone of the temple, and then we are the other stones in the temple, that we, the church, become the very place where heaven and earth intersect. We become the very place where the outside world can look in and can see God and can see what it looks like for Him to to, to bring healing and reconciliation into this world. And so when people look into the church and they see how we do things, uh, they they see how we deal with conflict, uh, they see, see how we deal with those who are in need, uh, we see, they see how we deal with marriage and, and, and other issues, uh, other social issues, cultural issues. They, they, they look in and, and they see, wow, they see, well, this is a little glimpse of what a reconciled world would look like. Not perfectly. We aren't perfect. It's, it's a process. That's something that, that, they, that, that is certainly evident. But, but the hope is that as they look in, they see more and more a picture of what this reconciled world would look like, that we become the means through which God brings reconciliation into this world. And we saw last week, as we looked at this passage, those of you who were attentive and were here last week might have thought that Hong was reading the wrong passage. But no, she was reading the right passage. This is the same passage that we looked at at last week, which uh, will become evident why I'm doing that. The reasons for that will become evident here Shortly, But what we saw last week is, is that it says here, again, verse 14, the first verse is, For this reason I kneel before the Father, that Paul is praying, and he's praying for the church. And, of course, the reason is what I've just spelled out. He's praying for the church precisely because he sees the church as the means through which reconciliation is going to come into this world. That's why he prays for them. For this reason I kneel before, them and I pr- before God and I pray for the church. And then we saw last week, okay, well, what is it that he prays for? What is it that Paul sees as being so crucial, so central to our ability to bring reconciliation into this world? What needs to be at the heart of a church? What what do we as a church need more than anything if we are going to be able to be effective in bringing reconciliation into this world? And, of course, what we see is that what we need more than anything is for us to come to know God and to know the love of God. To not just know it with our minds, but to really know it with our hearts. And when we talked about the difference between, between just cognitive knowledge and, and sensing something, experiencing something. And I, I, I talked about how Jonathan Edwards uses this illustration of the difference between, 
between having a rational idea that, that honey is sweet. Maybe people told you that honey was sweet. And then actually tasting it. Actually sensing it. And, it, and that sometimes some of us, maybe we, we know at a doctrinal level, I know God loves me. I know that he died for me. I know that he's sovereign over all things. But do we really know that? In the, in the deepest recesses of our soul, do we Do we know that? As it says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have we tasted that? Do we we taste that? Are Are we knowing God? Are we experiencing God at this transformative experiential level? And once again, I want to remind you that Maybe you've been a follower for many years and you say to yourself, I don't know how much I've experienced that. And, and, and I think sometimes people will think, I, I wonder if I'm really even a Christian. And again, I want to warn you that remember, Paul is praying for Christians. That's who he's praying for. He realizes that oftentimes followers of Christ can go through times and phases where they don't necessarily sense that or experience that. And that's precisely why he's, he's praying for them. He sees that knowing God at this experiential and transformational level is what needs to take place if we are going to be the means through which reconciliation can come into this world. And so then the question that emerges from this, and originally I was going to address it last week as well, but then we would have been here till Sunday evening if I had done that. So I realized I needed to break this up. But the question that emerges from that is, well then, how do I come to know God in this manner? Very practically, just practical how-to's. How do I come? Don't just tell me to ride the wave. How do you come to know? Oh, just ride the wave, man. Just ride the wave and you can come to know God. What is that? I don't know what that would mean. What are some basic how-tos of, of how I can and come to know God in this experiential and transformative way? And, and the things that I'm going to give are very basic. I think for many of us, they aren't things that we don't already know, but we, sometimes we need to be reminded. And these are four things I want to highlight that I think emerge from this text, very practically, how can we come to know God in this way? And the first thing that emerges is that we come to know God through prayer. Through asking God to reveal his love to us, right? This is what emerges in the first verse. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, pulsing, I'm praying that you would come to know the love of God. And, and, and so we, we need to pray, we need to ask for God to reveal himself to us and to our, our fellow Christians, fellow believers, I, th- I think one of the things that we sometimes do, and this is a good thing, is that we tend to think entirely about how, well, I need to pray for those outside the church who don't know God. I need to pray for them that they would come to know God. And, and, and that, of course, is well and good, but we don't realize that actually we need to pray that for ourselves as well. That we need to come to know God at a deeper level that, in fact, that remember the, the primary way, I think, in which those around us are going to come to know God is probably through us. Your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your, your family member, certainly we want to pray for them that they would come to know God, but, but we also need to pray for us that we would come to know God more deeply because through that, through that, then they can begin to see more and more the love of God within us. So, so we need to pray. We need to ask for God to reveal himself to us. We need to pray that we would come to, to know God. And, and I think there's something interesting that emerges in this passage. It's not simply a matter of praying for God to show his love to us. It's not just prayer. It's a, it's a desperate kind of prayer. I think the only kind of prayer that can actually bring transformation comes from a posture of desperation. We see this 
Again, in verse 1, I promise I'll get past verse 1 at some point. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. That's interesting because in the early church, the primary way in which they prayed was actually standing. Most of the time when they pray, they would pray standing. And so kneeling, though it isn't entirely unique, uh, it it symbolizes a couple of things. One of the things that it signifies is this, this sense of desperation that he's down on his knees begging, praying for God to come. And I think that, that for us to be able to experience God in this manner requires a level of, of desperation. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, this is, this is right, right at the beginning of your Bibles. It's on page, page 33 of your pew Bibles. And here we pick up in the middle of the story of Jacob. And Jacob is on his way back to the land of Canaan. He fled the land of Canaan, if you remember the story, because he stole his brother Esau's birthright. So he he thought his brother was going to try to kill him. His brother Esau was coming after him. So so he fled. He he went away. And 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 he's he's on his way back to the land of Canaan. And you can imagine he's probably a little bit nervous. He's not quite sure how this is going to come down when he finally meets up with Esau, I, I think he's probably so nervous that he can't sleep at night. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where something is so weighing down on you that you can't sleep at night? I suspect that that might be what's going on here with Jacob because it says here in verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, uh, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jacob, as you, of, the, of the Jabbok. As you can see, Jacob has been busy uh, in his time away. Uh, from the land of Canaan, picked up a couple of wives. Uh, that's another whole sermon. We won't go into that. But anyway, so Jacob is on his way back, and, and he, he, again, okay, Ap- after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. As he wrestled with the man, the man said, let go, let me go for it is daybreak. But, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. We find this interesting story. There's a lot, of course. Maybe more questions emerge than answers from a passage like that. But, but centrally, what we discover here is this idea that Jacob has been wrestling with God. And he's basically been saying, God, I'm not going till you, till you give me something, till you reveal this, till you bless me. Uh, and, and I think what we see here is a sense of desperation, right? It says that he, he touched his hip, and it seems like, uh, it, it's like it's like he dislocated his hip. Uh, but he keeps wrestling. Uh, I don't know if we have any wrestlers here, but I would imagine that trying to wrestle with a dislocated hip probably would not be very much fun. But this is the kind of desperate situation he's in. He's got a dislocated hip, but he's like, I don't care. I am so desperate. I am going to wrestle you until I get what I want. And I think this is a, a, a vivid illustration of what, what prayer is to be about. It's this desperate prayer. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says, You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart. It's coming from this position of 
of desperation that we can never really come to experience growth. We can never really experience the love of God until we're really desperate for God. Uh, one of my favorite preachers that I like to listen to is a man by the name of Matt Chandler. He, he's a pastor in Texas. He's the current president of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. And I, I like listening to his messages. There's one in particular that I heard many years ago uh, called The Question. And basically, he just he asks this question. He says that there's this question that throughout his life as a Christian, he sort of grew up in the church, uh, grew up within Christian community, and, and he just noticed that there's this question that he has about himself and about the church that has just nagged him uh, throughout his life. And so throughout this sermon, he just keeps reiterating that he has this question. And one of the things that he does is he goes through Scripture and, and he highlights uh, individuals who are desperate before God. Let me, let me show you another example here. Turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. This is on page, page 556 of your Pew Bibles. And this is a, this is a famous psalm. Uh, this is one that, that many of us will know. Sometimes I think we can get so familiar with a passage of Scripture that we almost get too familiar <clears throat> to the point where we, we, we stop thinking about what it's actually saying and we miss perhaps something that is really crucial to it. This is, this is Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? Now, again, this is a, this is a famous passage, as the deer, right? You guys remember the song from the 80s or whatever? As the deer. It's kind of like fun, little, happy little tune, and kind of draws up these images of this cute little deer going to get some water from the stream, and you know, it's the kind of verse that you might put on a coffee mug, or maybe you'd put it on a t-shirt, just this, this nice little Bible verse about this little deer coming to water. This is a deer who is, is dying. This is a deer who, if he doesn't get his water, he's going to die. He is, he, his, his food, his tears have been, my tears have been food all day and night. This is, this is a person that is so desperate for God that if they don't get God, they're going to die. This desperation, David is desperate for God. A picture of desperate prayer. And so Chandler, as he goes through the Bible, he identifies these characters that are desperate for, before God, whether it's, whether it's David or Paul. And, and, and then, then he goes through church history and he looks at a number of, of different individuals throughout church history who have had this, this desperation for God in their prayer and in their longing for God. And, and he just goes through all of these different people. And, of course, he keeps saying, but I have this question. I have this question. I have this question. And he finally gets to the end of the message, and he says, here's the question. Is he says, why aren't we like that? Why am I not like that? Why do I not have this desperate need for God? We come to church, we do our thing, but, but is there that, that sense of desperation before God? Because I think that what Paul is saying in our passage, or hinting at, and then we discover as we go through these passages, that is, if we really want to know God and love God, it's got to come from a, a posture of, of desperation. It's desperate prayer. How do we come to know God? How do we come to experience 
God in in an intimate, relational, and transformative manner. It's through prayer, desperate prayer. But but I think our passage highlights that there's something very specific that we need to pray for. What is it that we pray for? It's not simply that we pray, God, uh, God, show yourself to me. God, show your love to me. It's not simply that. This passage highlights something very specific that becomes the means through which we come to know him. And we see this in verse, let's see here, in verse 16 and 17, particularly in verse 17, I'll start in 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This word, Faith, the original word is a word that in, in English is often translated a number of different ways. It can be translated depending on whether it's a verb or a noun, but it's basically the same root, and it can be translated in a number of different ways, either as faith or belief or trust. And I think sometimes in, 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 because English has these different words, we tend to separate them. So, right, belief, uh, here would be the difference between belief and trust. Belief would be, I believe that that man that professional tightrope walker, I believe that if I climbed on his back, he would be able to carry me across the tightrope. I believe that's true. To trust that would be to actually climb on his back and go across the tightrope. See, there's a difference between belief and trust, and we've kind of bifurcated them, but the word, the the Greek word that's used all the time, really incorporates all of that. So it's a belief, it's a trust before God. And so realize what this is saying is that we come to know God through trusting in Him. We come to know God through trusting in Him. Now, think about what a paradigm shift that is. Because normally in most relationships, what do you do? You, you come to know them and then you trust them. Right? You, you come to know them, you try to figure out, can I trust this person as you come to know them more? Then you trust them. And certainly within the Christian walk, there is a dimension of that as well. But it seems that there is this also also strange dimension in which actually the way you come to know God is by trusting in Him. And that the more that you exercise that faith, the more that you can actually come to know Him. But but of course, and, and here's the irony here, is that this is why Paul is praying that we would have this faith. That even somehow this trust comes from God. So I I need to trust you, God. I need to trust you if I'm going to come to know you. But I need you to give me that trust. I need you to give me that faith. So I'm praying, God, that you would give me this faith, that you would give me this trust. If we want to come to know God in an experiential, transformative way, we've we've got to pray. We've got to come before him and pray for one another. That's the first thing we need to pray. <clears throat> Secondly, we need to submit to God. We need to submit. Looking again at verse 14, <laughs> I promise I'll move past verse 14 at some point here. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, I've already said that kneeling signifies a sense of desperation before God, but what it also signifies is a submission to God. Kneeling before God. It, Bowing down, bowing down before a king was a way of, of, of showing that you are submitting yourself to them. And so I think what this is getting at is that 
is that in order for us to come to know God, we've got to submit ourselves to Him. In other words, we have to, we have to really seek to be obedient to Him. We have to honestly repent of things that we know are not in line with how God would desire for us to live. So I think what we're talking about is repentance. Uh, yes, obedience, but, but again, obedience can really only come as God works through you to actually live that out. But, but there's this sense in which we need to be able to come before him and honestly say, God, I, okay, I have been walking, I have been doing things, I have been living in a way that is not honoring to you, and so I submit myself to you in that. No, we'll never really come to know him as long as there is that, that thing, right? That thing in your life that you know, you know, you, you probably, it's not how God would want you to live. That's not the way to go. And you're like, I want to know God. I want to know God. But you're still doing this. You're still living in that way. I want to know God. Why don't I ever see God? Why can't I experience God? Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have separated you from your God. Your, in, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We can't expect to know God if, we, if in one part of our minds we're, we're ignoring the fact that we're, there's this area of our lives that we're perfectly comfortable living in, which is not in line with what God would want. And, and even Tim Keller identifies that even at a, just at a psychological level, we should know that it's not going to work. Right, just, just psychologically, I mean, you, you know this. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, you're like, I want, I want to know my spouse more, right? But, but you're, you know, you're thinking about somebody else. Or you're spending a lot of time with somebody else, and, and your, your mind is kind of, but I want to, why don't I know my spouse? Why don't I know them very well? But you're, you're kind of distracted, and, and there's something pulling you away. Well, just at a psychological level, you know that's just not going to work. So if we really want to know God, we've got to be able to identify those things in our lives that are not right and, and say, okay, God, if I want to know you, I realize I, I, I've got to trust that turning away from this is what is best for me, is honoring to you. So I'd encourage you to think about that. Is there something in your life that you just, you know, you, you're like, I want to know you, God, but, 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 I'm, but I'm, I'm living in this way and I'd encourage you to to confess that and come before God, that we can't really come to know him until we kneel or we submit to him. How do we come to know God in a deeply experiential and transformative way? First, through prayer. Second, through submission. And third, through meditation. Meditation. What does that word mean, meditation? Well, let's look again here. Not verse 14. We'll move on here. In the middle of verse 17, it says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This this word grasp literally literally means to to conquer or to, to wrestle with. To wrestle with and then take down. To like sack a city. This word is used in the Old Testament sometimes to talk about taking a city, wrestling with it, and then conquering it, sacking the city. And so, so this, this idea that you're wrestling with something, you're, you're, you're seeking to, 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 to conquer something. Oh, what is that? What, what, is it, what does that even mean then to try to grasp the love of God? What, what are we trying to sack? What are we trying to conquer? 
And I think Tim Keller identifies, which I think is very interesting, if you go back to the psalm that we just read, Psalm 42. Psalm 42, and if you, if you read on, actually I'm not even sure if I have it marked in this Bible, but I think I know the verse. If you look a few verses later past the as the deer and all that, there's this interesting verse where, here's what the psalmist says. Here's what David says. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Isn't that an interesting psalm? He's talking to himself. He's talking to his own soul. There's a sense in which he's wrestling with his own soul. You see, that, I think, is what it means to try to grasp the love of God. That's what it means to meditate. Meditate is, 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 is you know, Eastern meditation is emptying your mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind, filling your heart, filling yourself with the truth and the love of God. It's taking the love of God and working it into every situation. It's wrestling with your soul. You find yourself, whatever situation, maybe there's something at work that is really worrying you, really bothering you. What does it mean to grasp the love of God? It's to wrestle with that. It's to say, no, come on, soul. Come on, soul. Don't be worried about that. Don't you know how much God loves you? You find yourself uh, feeling incredibly inadequate, uh, feeling very guilty about who you are and, and things that you've done with your life, you've, you've got to wrestle that. You've got to wrestle your soul and say, soul, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you allowing this to happen? Don't you know how much God loves you? Don't you know that Jesus died for you? But you've got to wrestle with this, and this is something that we've just got to do day in and day out. It's this wrestling match of taking the love of God and trying to grasp it and trying to take it into every situation that we face. How do we come to know the love of God in a deeply experiential and transformative way? Through prayer, desperate prayer, praying for faith. Through submission, submitting ourselves to God and identifying those areas in our lives where we know we are not walking in line with Him. Thirdly, through, through meditation, through wrestling with our souls and, and taking that love of God into every situation. I, I have a a friend, just one more example about that. I have a friend who every morning, I, I think he still does this, he gets up every morning and he gets in the shower and he repeats to himself Psalm 118.24, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And he says that he, he stays in the shower until his soul is convinced of that for that morning. The shower might take two minutes, it might take half an hour, it might take an hour, but he just keeps wrestling that into his soul until he gets it. That's what it means to grasp the love of God, to wrestle with it. So prayer, submission, meditation. And then finally, the fourth way in which we come to know God in an experiential and transformative manner is through community. Through community. Verse... Again, 17 and 18, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. Being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints. It's this idea that we come to know the love of God, we come to experience the power of God together with all the saints, that there is this necessity for community. And I think in this, 
in that one phrase, Paul is foreshadowing, he's pointing forward to what we're going to see when we look at chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he talks about the body of Christ. He talks about the church, and he talks about how we have been given different gifts, that God has given us different spiritual gifts, different abilities, and that those abilities are used to build one another up. Let me just read for you in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. He's saying that in order for us to to, to know the love of God, to, to, to attain the fullness of the knowledge of, of God requires community that we need one another. And I just, I've noticed that with our community groups, I've heard this from a number of different people, one of the things that they appreciate so much about the community groups is, is getting together and hearing different people's perspectives on what they're studying and, and, and different, a different angle on, on how that's applied to their lives and, and seeing it from that different perspective. I think that's what this is talking about. That for us to come to know God and to know the love of God requires that we have, that we have community. And this is one of the reasons why we continue to push our community groups, and we've, we've seen a lot of growth in those groups, and I think this is precisely why, that we, we really need one another if we're going to really come to know the love of God. Okay, so four ways in which we come to know the love of God, through prayer, through submission, through meditation, and through community. I just want to conclude by saying that I really believe our church is in a very exciting phase. We are a church that we're beginning to see new things happening. We're beginning to see some changes taking place in our church. And these changes, I think, are all for the good. And I believe God is really beginning to open up ways for us to bring reconciliation into this world. And as I look to 2015, as we look together to 2015, I think we need to take seriously what Paul is saying here. That in order for us to be able to be a church that can really reach this community, that can really help to bring reconciliation to this world, it's got to start with us coming to know God more and more. And so I would just ask you to join uh, me. I would ask you to join in your community groups to pray for this, that we as a church together would come to know the love of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you and we praise you for your tremendous love for us. God, we pray that you would help us to see that you really are all that we need. Lord, that our desire to know you would grow. God, we would see that there is nothing in this world that is greater than knowing you. As Paul says, he has forsaken all things. He's considered all things rubbish that he might know you. God, I pray you would work in our hearts. I pray you would work in in those of us who feel very distant from you. God, I pray that you would come to bring revival into our hearts, that you would give us the the humility to come before you and say that we need you. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid to know you. God, that for some of us that might be even frightening to come to know you because that 
as we come to know you, we come to know ourselves better. And sometimes it's easier just to kind of stay where we are. But God, I pray that you would, you would break through all of that. You would give us the boldness to trust in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come.